Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this is a very special podcast recorded just after the 53rd Munich Security Conference. The Munich Security Conference is the annual gathering of the leaders of Western and non-Western countries who come together every year to talk about European security and global security. Headlining the proceedings were the American Vice President Mike Pence, the Secretary of State Jim Mattis, as well as a host of leaders of other countries, including the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, the German Foreign Minister Zygmunt Gabriel, and foreign ministers from many other countries, from Iran to Russia to China. To help me make sense of the debates that took place, I'm joined by Wolfgang Ischinger, the chairman of the Munich Security Conference, who's also one of the leading figures in German foreign policy and has done almost all of the important jobs over the last few decades, from being ambassador to Washington, political director, state secretary, and his clever and deft diplomacy has been in evidence on almost all of the problems that have erupted across Europe from the Balkans to Ukraine in the years that have passed. We talked about three of the big themes which had run through the conference's proceedings. Firstly, what happens to Europe's security as the United States raises questions about the future of NATO? Secondly, what role does Germany play in this new Europe? And thirdly, what is happening to the West and to the global liberal order? Will it survive? And what can one do to help? So, Wolfgang, this was the 53rd Munich Security Conference, but I got the impression from many of the people there that this was possibly the the most poignant and the most important one. John McCain, who has probably been to more Munich security conferences than almost anyone in the world, said that he thought it was the, the most necessary and important one that he'd met. And the way that he talked was, was that this wasn't just about European security. It was about the whole idea of the West that was at stake. How did you feel about it? Well, I, uh, uh, I, I agree. This was uh, a very unusual and uh, uh, Munich Security Conference in more ways than one. And I, I think it will be remembered uh, for many years as uh, maybe it will be remembered as a kind of a turning point. Uh, the one uh, feature which, you know, I thought was uh, made it so different and also so exciting was that, of course, in the recent past, we had as our main themes you know, Russian behavior in Ukraine or the drama in Syria or other kinds of worries of this nature. This year, uh, our theme, number one, our central concern, uh, the, the, the central theme of this conference was uh, U.S. foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis uh, uh, European allies, uh, NATO, uh, even more importantly, maybe the EU, um, that made this conference really uh, quite unusual, I think. It was extraordinary in a way because Donald Trump was hanging over the conference like a spectre, but he wasn't actually there. But almost none of the conversations one had around coffee in the breaks, in the different sessions, whether they're on Syria, the European Union, the fight against jihadism or cyber, were not brought back to this central figure of, of Donald Trump. And, and he was sort of 
hiding in the background when all the American officials were playing as well. It was it gave a slightly surreal atmosphere to the whole event. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right, and and of course we we cannot expect we never had uh, the president of the United States in uh, Munich, but we had for many years the Secretary of Defense, uh, even a couple of times uh, uh, during the Obama years, uh, actually the Vice President, uh, in this case of course Joe Biden, uh, but the difference is that there was never any doubt when Don Rumsfeld spoke or any of his successors or predecessors or, or when Joe Biden spoke, there was never any doubt that what they said represented the administration. And by representing the administration, uh, they represented the White House and the president as the ultimate decision maker. That was different this year because even though I think our American speakers the, the new vice president, uh, the new secretary of defense, the new homeland security secretary uh, made valiant efforts to um, explain for, uh, uh, the approach uh, adopted or about to be adopted by the new administration. I think most of our participants from around the European Union at the conclusion of the conference were, or to use the words of uh, Joschka Fischer, uh, 13 years ago, uh, were not really convinced because they weren't so entirely sure that what they heard was actually going to be the view of the White House, the view of the administration. So, in other words, the degree of uncertainty about the United States was, of course, extraordinary before the conference started as a continuing question throughout the conference. And I think it's not unfair to say that at the conclusion of the conference, some of these concerns and questions, of course, remained, uh, continue to exist and continue to, to, to occupy us and to, um, uh, and to worry us greatly. And you've, you know, in various different roles, had a, a life which has been very much defined by the transatlantic relationship, you know, as an ambassador in, in Washington, but also uh, you've been in the cockpit of some of the big European security crises in the Balkans, in Ukraine, in other uh, uh, theatres, which uh, including yeah, I think you were in Washington in the run up to the Iraq war, which must have been a, a very complicated period in transatlantic relations. So from a personal perspective, how, how would you kind of characterize the situation that we're in now compared to all of these different historical examples? Well, I think that. Uh, the so-called burden-sharing debate, which played a central role at this Munich Security Conference, has uh, the potential of creating yet another uh, a gap between America and European allies. I think it was visible this past weekend, and it worries actually me, and, and I'm sure many others greatly, it was visible that even now, even as we just start to have uh, to, 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 to having this discussion, there are differences becoming visible, for example, within the current German coalition government. Chancellor Merkel and her defense minister uh, react sort of quite positively uh, to American demands regarding this famous 2% goal. The uh, SPD coalition partner, represented by the new foreign minister, uh, Sigmar Gabriel, um, 
voice is a somewhat different approach. Yeah, in fact, uh, he said in your in your conference that um, spending more on security and defense doesn't make you safer, didn't he? He explicitly pulled cold water on the two percent target and said e- that exactly. So I think that for for the next period, uh, uh, we all know that Germany isn't the only country that has an election coming up. Uh, this year and in, in coming months, uh, I think it's this is an item to watch. To what extent is this burden sharing debate going to be used by the, let's say, by the left, to to generalize it a bit, uh, to make a to make a, an election campaign point, which of course would directly or indirectly be tied to a certain degree of anti-Americanism. Uh, I am reminded of the situation we had in Germany in 2002, when we also had a, uh, an important election. Uh, Chancellor Schröder won his re-election on a platform which was quite openly critical of uh, the Bush administration's Deutschland. Exactly. So, uh, 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 and of course that did some uh, damage quite a bit of damage actually to the to the close bilateral relationship to the transatlantic uh, uh, transatlantic link so i i am a bit worried that we may have seen in munich this past weekend the um, the beginning of something that could actually if it's not handled with care that could actually become rather divisive and maybe even a bit ugly as we uh, as as we move forward, but let me let me add a, add a more general point. We 500 million Europeans need to come to grips with the fact that we have actually outsourced central elements of our security. In this case, strategic security, uh, n- the nuclear umbrella protection offered by the United States. We have outsourced this element of our security for practically half a century. To another country, which which actually isn't even as 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 big in terms of population as the European Union, that is not a very healthy situation. So I think it is only fair to uh, to raise this burden sharing item and to discuss the question: How can we move forward? And I think the question, the answer that we should give as Europeans um, should have two elements. First of all, it would be an a huge mistake, politically speaking, if we uh, if we continued to to act and to speak in a way that would allow critics to argue that the defense budgets of European member states of NATO are you know determined in Washington by the by the demands of the Trump administration. I think, of course, the argument which we need to use is that our defense budget is determined by us, the British one by the Brits and the German one by the Germans, and collectively we should consult as as Europeans about the security needs that we have, that we define as the ones that that we need to uh, meet. And on that basis, if we then figure out that our security needs uh, lead us in the direction of the two percent goal, that's fine. But I think it is a disaster. It would be a disastrous mistake if we allowed this impression to be created that uh, we spend on defence 
because America wants us to spend on defense. We need to spend on defense if we believe that we need to spend on defense in order to maintain the security of our citizens and of our borders. Full stop. I think that is a key uh, point which hopefully people will have taken home. And the, and the second point, if I, if, if I may, is that, of course, Europeans can do a lot more about their military uh, capabilities, uh, their decisiveness, their unity in, in terms of foreign policy and security policy and defense, uh, even if they don't all meet the 2% goal. There is so much room for improvement in terms of you know, pooling and sharing, uh, uh, creating synergy effects by uh, buying arms, uh, uh, armaments, uh, goods together rather than separately, by training together, and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm happy to see that a number of pilot projects in this direction have, of, co of course, been created. But my hope would be that this, this Munich Security Conference, with the uncertainties about how the Trump administration would, would wish to react if uh, NATO members... Uh, were not to meet the full 2% goal a year from now or at the end of this year, I hope it will be seen by the leaders of our EU member countries as a kind of a wake-up call to uh, make sure that uh, our own capabilities will be on the top of their agenda, not only as, not only as the 11th item, you know, five minutes before the next European Council uh, concludes, uh, but as a major item, I think... Wolfgang, I we think, all, I think yeah, we all hope that, but um, how much... Because it, it did feel like this conference was different from that uh, respect. Because, you know, it's always something which, which defence ministers, particularly from France and Germany, talk about. But do you think it really is going to be different? Do you think that we have actually had a wake-up call? Or do you think that um, we're going to come back and have the same discussions next year? Well, uh I'm not sure. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to bet my money on this, but speaking and listening, you know, individually to people like Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel, for 10 years, has had chosen not to focus much on defense. She now focuses on it. She understands this is an important issue. So that's new and different. Um, Jean-Claude Juncker, even though he isn't even fully responsible for this dossier, is actually uh, coming out rather strongly in favor of this defense effort, as does uh, Donald Tusk, the president of the council. So I think things have changed or are beginning to change, not only in the Franco-German discussions, uh, but also in the discussions with other key member states. Uh, look, I mean... Uh, uh, we have Eastern European partners who are now uh, uh, entering relationships, military relationships with Germany, which is, I mean, uh, to me, a historic event of, of, of almost unprecedented proportions. Who would have thought 20 years ago that we would have um, a, a, a Dutch and now in the future a Czech or a Polish contingent uh, serving under a German general or vice versa. This is good. It's politically almost incredibly good. And I think it's also militarily the step in the right direction. So uh, I'm holding my breath. I hope 
that the European Council, when they meet next and when they meet, uh, when they continue to meet this year, they will decide that this is a wake-up call uh, and they need to react uh, to, uh, to this challenge in a, in a decisive manner, not by issuing uh, more declarations, but by taking uh, strategic decisions, by establishing benchmarks and by asking the Commission and member states to come up with, uh, with decisions according to a, to a fixed timetable. I think that's what is needed. Uh, it, it, it must become clear to folks in Washington and uh, throughout the European Union that the EU has decided uh, you know, to, to actually take action here, which will, which will, if it happens, which will need to include some painful decision, uh, decisions because it will, it, this will not work well unless we also discuss uh, whether it's right or wrong for the European Union to have six times more um, types of armaments than the United States. In other words, we spend our money rather irresponsibly. If we have, if we have six times fewer types of armaments, it obviously means um, closing this or that plant or, um, or merging this or that uh, company with with other companies. In other words, a consolidation process in Europe would be required, which would be painful in terms of social and economic uh, and 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 other questions. So this is not a a pain free kind of process, but I think it's a necessary process, and I hope it's starting right now this year. So I'd like to talk about two other really big topics. One is um, the future of Germany. Um, and the other is the the kind of liberal order and to what extent that kind of carries on existing. But may, maybe we can pivot from from Europe to to Germany, because I've been very struck um, going back and forth between London and Berlin, how completely different the British and German debates about Donald Trump and his impact on the world order have been. Uh, from the very beginning, there was... Uh, admittedly, some of this came from outside of Germany, but a kind of a hope and an aspiration that Angela Merkel would become the leader of the free world and a sense that she was very concerned about the, the future shape of the, the global order. And at the same time, there was a debate in Britain, an anguished debate, because um, uh, Donald Trump phoned nine people before he got round to calling, uh, uh, to taking a call from Theresa May. And then Nigel Farage was going to uh, to meet him in, 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 in his golden lift in in Washington, um, and there was a, a, a the British debate was very much about kind of optics and about um, uh, about whether Britain could do a trade deal with the US. Whilst the German debate seemed to be a much more fundamental one about the the kind of future global order and a real sense of, of rising to the occasion and thinking about um, about Germany's role as a stakeholder for for the order which um, uh, has served. Uh, it and the the whole of Europe so well over the last few decades. How do you see that debate emerging? And and to what extent do you feel that Germany is having to regard itself in a different way, in the same way that with the Euro crisis, you had to rethink what role you were going to play within the European Union? Do you think there is a, a sense that Germany has to play a different role on the whole world stage now? Well, let me begin by saying that I wish... Berlin could could use a little bit of the British, you know, pragmatic approach to this challenge from from Washington, uh, and vice versa. Maybe it would be 
be useful if the British approach wasn't only, you know, quite cynical. Uh, let's invite him to uh, Windsor Castle, and he'll 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 love to be invited, and maybe he'll feel good about it. That strikes me as a a, a rather superficial approach to what quite certainly is going to be uh, a, a rather serious uh, problem. So that's my first point. Second point, uh, I acknowledge that we have had for two years now, or even longer, uh, a debate, at least among intellectual circles in Germany, about uh, what role, what is the German, German responsibility in Europe and beyond, what, uh, what role should we play? In fact, you, well, you published a huge volume um, for the security conference about Germany's new responsibility with a, a very bright yeah. pink cover. We did, and I think it's a necessary debate, and it will surely need to continue. But the question is, what is the desirable outcome of this? My answer is, uh, the idea which has been kicked around by some, that Germany should, given the relative weight, uh, should now take a more proactive role in trying to lead the European Union. I think that is the exact wrong idea. Uh, what I think is... Uh, the right idea is for Germany to use its power and its, its relative weight in the EU and, and also outside the EU to play and, and place this relative power at the service uh, of the European Union. Uh, let me use as an example foreign policy. Uh, I think that what Germany should do is to argue that we should... Uh, we should make our foreign policy apparatus, we should streamline it uh, far more. We should adopt majority decisions in the foreign policy process. I don't think you would actually need a, a treaty change for that if everybody agrees uh, to this voluntarily. Uh, I think this can be agreed uh, uh, in a simple meeting. So if we started a debate about making the European Union more capable of speaking with one voice by adopting qualified majority decision-making in foreign policy and security policy. Of course, there will always be somebody who will say no, and it will probably take 100 years to agree this, uh, but simply to start a process and putting up the flag and saying we are the biggest country in the EU, but we are actually prepared to put our power at the service of uh, the European Union. We, we, we want the European Union to be a credible and powerful actor on, on, on global affairs, representing 500 million people. And we have not done a good job so far in, in playing that role in the way that it, in my view, should be played. And Germany can take an initiative and should take an initiative, in my view, uh, to get a, a process of discussion started following the speeches that President Gauck and others have uh, have uh, given over the last two or three years. Well, maybe I cannot. We can end the discussion with the really big question, which is that we started with uh, John McCain and this sort of idea that the West and that the liberal order is in the is hanging in the balance at the moment. And I think you know, for Germany, for the European Union, um, in particular, there is a really big question about whether what we loosely talk about as the, the liberal order, by which we mean a kind of uh, a trading order, a belief in 
uh, international human rights and uh, institutions which which um, uh, determine how they work, a set of regional security orders, a set of mechanisms for dealing with the global commons uh, and environmental problems, um, and essentially a, a set of rules and institutions for, for handling uh, political conflict between different countries. Do, it, do we think that that is uh, going to survive the uh, challenge both from challenger powers that uh, have often been unhappy about some of these institutions because they weren't present at the creation and they feel were, were designed by Western countries to serve their interests, but even more powerfully of a White House that seems to, to want to revise a lot of these institutions because it also seems to think that they're run against its interests. Because um, I think if we think that um, that, that orders finished and that we're not strong enough to kind of maintain it then that might lead Europeans to take more responsibility for European security but um uh potentially uh have a much more uh, realpolitik approach to, to 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 other issues on the on the global stage and to to try and act in a more unilateral way using the European single market as a as a way of of of, of imposing its will on uh, on others or alternatively if we think that that order is is just being pushed back on and being damaged then we might think about having different strategies to save it and they might be about building new alliances for example with china to save the global trade regime um uh, you know maybe find common cause with others to 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 save the the paris uh, agreement on climate etc etc i mean what's your hunch after having sat through uh the last few days where there were really really lively discussions on lots of bits of that order in munich well i think uh, uh mark i i think this is a this is of course the one million dollar question where is the global order going to go after this or uh, now because of the trump uh, phenomenon, uh, etc. Et, et um, I would like to think that from a German point of, uh, of view, uh, it would be a tremendous and unacceptable loss if the uh, what you call and what I call the liberal global order, which is also an order that is pro-globalization, uh, if that were to uh, fall apart and uh, uh, and if we ended up uh, defending our national interests via bilateral arrangements, which seems to be the preferred uh, method of working by some of the folks in the Trump White House, we don't know at, at this moment uh, who will prevail and how, how that will come out in, in, in the future. But I think from, from my point of view and from an enlightened uh, German view, uh, it is extremely important that we maintain not only a global, uh, an open global uh, economic system, uh, which is hopefully rules-based, because this system has actually allowed hundreds of millions of people in India and China and other countries to come out of poverty, of, 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 of total poverty, and end up in something that begins to look like, you know, the middle classes. So huge progress that has been made over the last uh, couple of uh, few decades is due to the fact that we had uh, 
and that we continue to have at this moment this uh, open order. We would be, we uh, in, in Europe, we Germans would be losing everything if we started uh, to believe that, of course, on trade, maybe we could be a good, al we would find in China a good ally. But we will not find in China a good ally on human rights. So, and human rights uh, and other value-based um, uh, elements is, is also part of the liberal global order that I, uh, that I would define. So I think we have no choice. Uh, uh, I think that if Donald Trump uh, wants to go in a different direction, we will not be able to follow him in this different direction. We would want to defend, to the extent we can, this inter this uh, this this current currently still existing order, um, and we would, uh, uh, of course, in order to to have any chance of doing that, we would actually need uh, a far more credible foreign policy. That takes me back to the, our earlier discussion, and we would also need. Uh, some degree of, of, of military credibility in order to be recognized, uh, not, not as uh, an actor that sits on the on the backbench, uh, but as an as an actor that can actually be on the playing field and uh, work with others and influence them. And I'm um, uh, at this moment, I'm not convinced that we cannot convince the United States that uh, a return to nationalism would actually be a bad idea, even for the United States, with only two, uh, 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 two neighbors. So I think we should not be underestimating our potential power and, 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 and influence. And I think this is an issue worth fighting for. But we can fight it only if we are, as Europeans, uh, united, if we have a clear position, if we know what we're doing, if we don't speak with 27 or 28 voices, but with one uh, in other words, it takes me back to the earlier point. Uh, this is a wake-up call for Europe, and the European Union can survive, probably will survive, and maybe actually will emerge from this uh, enormous crisis that we have had for the last few years, and that is now even including our relationship with the United States, uh, stronger and more united. That is what, what I'm an optimist. I think we, uh, it's doable. With those fighting words, I think we should <laughs> we should end on this uncharacteristically um, optimistic note. There's one more thing which we do on this podcast, Wolfgang, which is to to ask our guests uh, about what books are on their bookshelves at the moment. I don't know whether you've had much time to read, given that you were trying to pull half of the world's leaders together into Munich for the last period of time but now that you've escaped to to, to have a few days of, re of of rest and relaxation on the skiing slopes have you have you got any exciting books or mag or articles on your on your shelves well i'm i'm afraid one of the books that i've just read which i found uh, interesting and 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 refreshing is is a german book and i i don't think it's out yet i hope it will be out in english it's written by Thomas Schmidt, who is a, who is a, a serious journalist for Die Welt um, and who has written a book uh, about the kind of European Union that, that kind of a rebirth of, of, a, of a reinvented European Union that he believes uh, is, is what we need. I thought it gave me uh, many, many interesting ideas. Um, 
And um, uh, actually, what I have read over the last uh, number of months is such a large number of, of books about the European Union. I've been I've been um, buying every and getting every book that I could get my hands on on the EU. So actually, the, the Thomas Schmidt book is one. Uh, there are many many others on my desk, but it's it's all about what role can the European Union play, and uh, and how do we get from where we are to where we need it, where where we should be. That's wonderful. So I'm going to add um, to spay your blushes uh, another book recommendation, which is this huge volume, um, which is packed with interesting things, which Wolfgang um, has co-edited, which was brought out specially for the Munich Security Conference called uh, Deutschland's Neue Verantwortung, Germany's New Responsibility. Um, We will put links up to all of these publications, as well as to the Munich Security conference website which has got lots and lots of clips and transcripts of the extraordinary discussions which took place in Munich under Wolfgang's able uh, leadership over the last few days and um, we hope that you've enjoyed this podcast if you have any comments on our discussion please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu you can find um, all of these links on our website, which is uh, www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. And we would love it if you would tweet about this, uh, post about it on your Facebook page, give us rankings on iTunes and reviews on iTunes so that other people can find uh, the discussion and enjoy it as well. But for now, with thanks from Wolfgang Ischinger and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Pauline Goemi. Goodbye.